This is Gil Manser welcoming you to Word by Word Conversations with Writers on North Bay Public Media, KRCB-FM in Windsor, Santa Rosa, where tonight's guest is the celebrated novelist and former Sonoma County resident, T.C. Boyle. Since the mid-1970s, Tom Corrigesian Boyle has published 12 novels and more than 100 short stories. T.C. is also the Distinguished Professor of English at the University of Southern California, and he won the Penn Faulkner Award in 1988 for his third novel, World's End, which recounts 300 years in upstate New York. Several of his other novels are fictionalized accounts of real people's lives, including The Road to Wellville, about the serial inventor and health guru John Harvey Kellogg, The Women, about architect Frank Lloyd Wright, and the Inner Circle, about sexologist Alfred Kinsey. This is T.C. Boyle's second visit with us. We had a word-by-word conversation in April 2011 about his novel When the Killing's Done, which is set in the Santa Barbara Channel Islands. At that time, T.C. mentioned his next novel would be about some of the hardy sheep ranchers who lived on the northernmost island in the chain, including the Lesters, who were featured in Life magazine as America's real-life Swiss family Robinson. That book is called San Miguel, and it is the novel we will be discussing this evening. T.C. Boyle, welcome back to Sonoma County and Word by Word. Ah, thanks, Gil. So, San Miguel has a strong connection to when the killing's done. In addition to the same island locations, it follows a similar structure in that there's it's broken into different sections and different time periods, and they both, they're all... Uh, the names of women. Yes, yes. Uh, when we talked last time, uh, I was working on San Miguel. Mm-hmm. Um, I've never done a sequel, and this is not really a sequel or even a prequel. It's just a sort of companion piece, but the books are utterly separate, except that they take place on the Channel Islands, right off of Santa Barbara, which I began to explore a few years ago. And I had some material left over. I discovered these wonderful... Uh, diaries and memoirs of San Miguel Island, and mm-hmm. I've written a straightforward historical narrative about them. Well, the first section is called Marantha, and it tells the tale of a woman with tuberculosis whose husband tells her that San Miguel's clean, bracing air and warm climate will help cure her. But instead, she finds a place of extreme weather, desolate isolation, and a filthy, damp, moldy house smelling of sheep that she never seems able to get clean and dry. Well, of course, Marantha was an upper-middle-class woman living in San Francisco. Right, uh, which is foggy in bits as it is. Exactly, and and they felt moving south, all the way south to San Miguel Island, which is off of Point Conception, um, would be a big improvement. After all, it is south. But in fact, it's even colder there than it is in San Francisco. Right. And the wind blows perpetually. Uh, it's where the uh, northern current comes down. Is, it circles around and is bumped out by Point Conception, and the southern current uh, collides with it, which is why the Santa Barbara Channel is so rich in, in marine life. Right. Is there something we should know about Marantha? I'm going to have you read this section about where, when she first walks into the uh, the house in the bedroom. But All we need to know is what you've already told us, Gil. Okay. All right. Shall, shall we start here, just this paragraph down to the next page there? Sure. Will couldn't expect her to live here. No one could. The room was uninhabitable, as crude and ugly a place as she'd ever seen in her life. The floorboards were innocent of varnish or even oil, and they were deeply scuffed and scoured by the sand, which seemed nearly as comfortable here as in the yard. There were no curtains on the windows, 
The furniture, such as it was, consisted of half a dozen wooden chairs, a long bare table etched with the marks of heavy usage, and a bleached out sideboard that looked as if it had been salvaged off a ship, which, she would learn, was in fact the case. No rug, no paintings, no china, no decorations of any kind. Worst of all, no one had bothered to cover the walls, which had been crudely whitewashed, apparently from the same bucket that had been put to use on the exterior. This wasn't a room. It was just an oversized box, a pen, and at the rear of it were two bedrooms the size of anchorite cells and an even cruder door that gave on to a lean-to addition that served as the kitchen. Everything smelled of... of what? Sheep. That's what the place smelled of, as if the whole flock had been using it as a barn. Aha. Uh -huh. So you can imagine, anybody who knows how sheep smell, there's this uh, combination of urine and dried dung and lanolin, a real strong lanolin smell. And obviously, since everyone there, you know, lives the day they eat, sleep, drink with the animals around. And, uh, exactly. It, and Marantha is a woman who uh, was dominated by uh, her husband and uh, her wish to please him. Uh, she was, uh, this was her second husband, Will mm -hmm. uh, Waters. Captain Waters, he was a Civil War veteran. He convinced her to take her $10,000, which she had left from her first husband, and invest in this island. Mm -hmm. It's it's irresistible to have your own island, to be king and queen of your own island and make your own way in the world. But um, she tried her best, but she wasn't suited to it. And, of course, this was about the worst thing she could have endured for her tuberculosis. Right. In the road to Wellville, you give us quite a bit of information about how tuberculosis was treated. And one of the things was the cold, bracing air. But it wasn't the damp air that they find out on the Channel Islands. Right. She keeps thinking it would have been much better to go to Italy <laughs> uh, and, and, and sit by a wall with the sun on it. Right. But in fact, uh, um, she had to endure this. And by the way, she was only there... For just over five months, she began on New Year's Day, mm -hmm. and they were gone uh, in early June. Uh, Captain Waters kept the place for many years and did make a great uh, profitable enterprise out of this. Meanwhile, mm -hmm. anyway, we haven't mentioned her adopted daughter, Edith. Right. Well, she's was... in the next section. I oh, was going to get good. to her. Okay. Yeah. Well, okay. She was, she's been taken out of school in order to come out to this island and live with her stepfather and her mother and only two other, or three other people, uh, Adolf Beerson, who was one of the hands, a boy named Jimmy, who was uh, Edith's age, about 15, who was also one of the hands, um, and then a serving maid named Ida, who they brought with them from San Francisco. That's mm -hmm. it. That's mm -hmm. your entire society. And sheep. And a few sheep. And lots of mice. Plenty of them. And, and lots and of mice. foxes, teeny little foxes. Mm -hmm. yeah. The dwarf foxes right. are there as well. Right. But the other things that are part of the island that have their personality all their own are the changes in the weather. The first thing that she is aware, that Marantha is aware of, is the wind. And she sees its evidence not only in by feeling it as she comes up from the, the ship up this very steep, muddy path uh, with, perched on the back of a traveling cart where they've lashed a, uh, a rocking chair up. So she can sit there like a queen, but she does not feel like a queen. She feels very precarious. And the wind hits her. And as she gets to the house, she realizes that all the glass has been scoured. So you can't really see through it well, because it's the little fine grains of sand have scraped away the outer surface. 
And then the next thing is the rain. And I love the, the how we discover the rain. Can I have you read from that as well? Sure. All right. Sure. This is in uh, the part where they have finally moved into the house. She has tried to clean and get things dry, and getting them dry and uh, is not possible. But the rain um, appears one evening. Okay. Well, again, this is not a companion piece to when the killing's done, which is much concerned with the environment. This right. is concerned with our place in the environment. And yet, this is a theme, a sub-theme here that we're, we're, we're talking about. Um, uh, yeah, but I'm mentioning that. There's certain events that occur. There are people who appear who are doing, you know, uh, scientific expeditions and seeing what's there. There are people who are profiting from the sea, the fishermen and the sealers. There are people who are looking to the island as a possible real estate venture. And, and then, of course, then later on, World War II comes and the Navy appears. So, yeah. 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 Well, again, as with when the killing's done, these islands were points of contention. People wanted them. They were mm -hmm. privately owned at one point. And the sand, uh, the sandstorms there are impossible because it had been overgrazed by sheep mm -hmm. for, I don't know, at this point, let's see, 50 years. Right. And uh, the veg native vegetation was gone. And so you uh, even today you see great white stripes of dunes across this island. Although I've been there with the ranger and uh, in the absence of sheep for all these years, there is beginning to have uh, uh, some effect of native vegetation coming back. And incidentally, there are no trees on this island. All right. None. All the wood comes from shipwrecks or, or old railroad ties. Mm -hmm. Right. I should make an exception. There are two palm trees that. Uh, oh, I, that's right. That's uh, right. Uh, but yes, these were planted uh, down in the cove where you right. came in. So uh, yes, uh, the weather does play a large character in this book, and um, the chapters are short and direct, and they take you through daily life and what it must have been like. I'm trying to inhabit the three women of this book, and. Think what it must have been like to live there. Mm -hmm. All right. So you've asked me to read the beginning of this chapter about the rain. Yeah. We've heard the wind, and now here comes the rain. <laughs> it came in the night without preliminary, a sudden crashing fall against the shingles of the roof that woke her, gasping from a dreamless sleep. At first she thought it was the wind, another sandstorm churning across the island to bury them like Osmandius. But then she heard the gutters rattle and the swift plunge of the cisterns, and knew that the real rain, the rain they'd been waiting for, had arrived. All she could think was that Will would be pleased, and she should have been pleased too, rain like money in the bank. But she hated the dampness it brought, because dampness was the ally of the thing inside her, and of the mold, the mold that crept over every stationary object in the house like a biblical plague, the furniture spotted with it, clothes greasy to the touch a day after they'd been washed, the pages of her books marked and sullied, eaten away from the inside out, rotted, decayed. But she had to stop herself. The rain was the important thing, and the rain was a blessing. She repeated the thought aloud as if to convince herself, her voice a dying whisper in the dark, lost to the susurrus of the rain. For a long while, she lay there listening to the trill of the gutters, everything adrift, until finally her thoughts floated free and she fell asleep again. Yeah, but she wakes up to find that the rain has managed to find every single hole in the roof. 
Isn't that the way it is, That's even in right. our modern day? That, well, there's something about water. You're either trying to keep it out or keep it in or keep it in a pipe, but it's never mm-hmm. where, you know, somehow there it gets through. And uh, this is an interesting thing. What happens in there, you see the two sides of this woman. She wants the rain to be a good thing because it will make their life, you know, easier for one thing. They've been waiting for it. And she wants that for her husband and their family. But she also wants a peacefulness for herself, which she finds really difficult to to find on this island. You would think that being so alone, mm-hmm. but uh, there's a con- – I mean, that when she first arrives in the house and she goes up to the bedroom and she sees the, you know, the stark cell that she's supposed to live in for the rest of her days – uh, she has a really what we would call a breakdown, wouldn't you say? Yes, and she's not a woman who would naturally embrace nature. She has not lived in nature. She's lived with uh, creature com- comforts. Her husband has convinced her to sell the piano, uh, get rid of the cat, uh, uh, close up the apartment that they were renting in San Francisco. Um, and she goes along with him, hoping for the best. Right. Well, well, there's there's a life for her there. The other thing that hits on on the islands is the fog. Now, she was used to that in San Francisco, but this is a different kind of fog. For when she goes out one evening, the fog comes in and she finds herself unable to know where she was in space and time. Did you see the fog like that when you were out on the islands? No, I did not encounter the fog when I was on San Miguel Island. I did encounter it previously mm-hmm. on, on the other islands and, of course, uh, where I'm living in coastal Santa Barbara. Right. We have some pretty dense fog sometimes. And so I was able to uh, to talk about that. I mean, Marantha talks about it in her diary and the Lesters talk about it too. Mm-hmm. Um, this island is the one that, that, that takes the brunt of all the weather coming down from the north. Right. You used to, in fact, you re- refer to three books that you used at the start of this uh, novel which were uh, collections of diaries and things written by people who'd lived on the island. And you obviously, you know, have drawn a great deal from that. You yes. have given these people the, the, the same names as those people, but carefully done that, you know, novelist trick in the front saying, well, any similarity between et cetera, et cetera. But, I'm trying to be true to the history. Right. I love the history as I've received it through uh, Marantha's diary, and then especially Elise Lester, Elizabeth Elise Lester, mm-hmm. the, the the wife of Herbie Lester, in the last part of the book, right. her her um, memoir of living for her twelve years on this island. Um, but the memoir does give us some sense of how she felt, mm-hmm. how Elise felt, and the diary less so. You have to read between the lines. But my job as the novelist is to invest these characters and try to dramatize how it must have been, how they must have felt, what they did in this uh, remote place uh, apart from society. Right. It's a kind of Eden in one sense, and it's a kind of hell in the other. It's like being put on Alcatraz. You know, it's life is just across the 12 miles away on the horizon there. Yeah, and I, I think it's an, an apt metaphor for, at least for Marantha's condition, mm-hmm. and for Edith's. I mean, they felt, very much felt trapped here. I think uh, at least very much loved and embraced the life on mm-hmm. the island. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, she had a diff- she had a leg up in that she loved and embraced the man she was with, too. Exactly. And she had considered that she was in her 30s when she got married. She was 38. She was a spinster. Right. She was the ugly duckling of her family, a, a, a librarian at the New York City Public Library. 
And she, too, met a war veteran, Herbie, a, a veteran of the First World War, um, a very energetic, handsome man, mm-hmm. swept her off her feet, mm-hmm. and uh, immediately after their wedding, took her out to this island, uh, even though she was extremely elderly, 38. Right. Uh, she bore two daughters in quick succession and uh, raised them on the island, mm-hmm. which is one of the reasons that the American public became so fascinated with the Lesters during the Depression, uh, living apart from everything, uh, living uh, to a degree self-sufficiently, and raising their daughters and educating them apart from all the influence of society, the bread lines, the, uh, the tramps, uh, uh, the whole Depression. Right. They had their they had their own uh, depression of ups and downs, but it was seasonal and dependent upon forces that uh, were affecting everybody, but had less of an impact on them. Yeah, and certainly the war um, had its, you know, Will was affected by that because of his shrapnel that returned and became a will, life-threatening. Will from the first. I'm sorry, from not the will, Civil no. War had been wounded. Yes. Uh, what was the Herbie? Herbie, Herbie had Thank both uh, shell shock and a shrapnel in his body that was migrating. Right. He, in fact, had to go back to shore in an emergency and uh, have an operation to remove some of the shrapnel. And he was off the island for some months, leaving Elise and the babies there to fend for themselves. He didn't want to, but this is yeah. the way it happened. Right. And they treated the infection, the secondary infection, which obviously people were getting then just as now, with uh, sulfa drugs. Right. Because that there was – penicillin was sort of – It around. had just been invented yeah. and was being used uh, experimentally and experimentally. Yeah. Right. And so the sulfa drugs can uh, have side effects and they can uh, – they can um, uh, foment some psychological damage to which – Herbie was prone anyway. I see right. him as perhaps suffering from manic depression uh, and going through cycles of that and also uh, still having uh, nightmares and problems from what he encountered in the First World War. Right. Well, we've kind of skipped over that section we wanted to get back to, which is called Edith. Mm. And this is the the teenager who, who arrives on the island originally and um, – as you say, her mother is only there for four or five months, and then they go back to the mainland for a bit. But then she is brought back. To yeah, the this island. is this is the part of the story that my daughter encouraged me to bring out. Um, Edith was seventeen; her mother had died, mm-hmm. and she was in school. She wanted to be an actress, a musician. Uh, her stepfather doing well in school too. Doing well. Her stepfather, uh, like in some fairy tale, the evil stepfather didn't like that she was outside his influence and perhaps going out with boys. So he brought her back to the island to live just with him, Adolf and Jimmy, and to be the woman of the house, that is, to cook and clean and so on, even though she'd never done anything like this before. And she had one thought only, and that was to escape and lead her own life. Right. So she tried, uh, as as men would arrive, because the shears would come out and the the you know the fisherman would come out and the the seal hunter would come out and they were uh, re- the, he was retrieving the the bird guano guano yes right. uh, guano hunters in those days because it was used both as fertilizer and also in the munitions industry mm-hmm. high nitrate yeah. content yeah mm-hmm. so uh, when they came she repeatedly would go to them and do things with them to encourage them taking her off the island. You're talking about sex now, Gil. I am. 
she wasn't innocent. Well, you wrote it. She wasn't innocent. Well, and... there is an interesting innocence to her, though, because mm-hmm. she referred to Jimmy, the, the young boy who was on the island with her, as her Caliban. Yeah. She is manipulative uh, and, and very bright, um, takes advantage of Jimmy, but, but uh, as like a virginal that. girl yeah. and a virginal boy together on this island, they began to experiment with each other a little bit, though no full-on sex. But then she began to see the power of that and tried to have Jimmy find a way for her to get off the island. Right. But he wouldn't do it for two reasons. He was in love with her. He didn't want her to leave. And secondly, the captain her would father. be very displeased. Right. And so, again, this is all fictionalized at this point. She did actually escape the island mm-hmm. with the guano collector. Mm-hmm. But I then uh, fictionalized how she might have been feeling. And she makes another attempt to escape with one of the shearers. Right. And this turns out to be very disappointing for her. and <laughs> In it, many ways. In many yes. ways. And it also is a time in which she loses her virginity. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the things that happens, and I have to ask you this question, she becomes, she changes her name. She becomes a different person, a stage persona. Inez she... Dean. Right. And did, f- did this really happen? Yes, this is true. And in fact, her story is quite fascinating. Yeah. Um, I tell it in brief right. in the last section you of the story. You could have a book by that on it itself. It could be an entire book on itself. She did have quite an amazing life. She did escape and she did become a relatively celebrated uh, actress on the stage in San Francisco in Los Angeles. Um, she married three times. Mm-hmm. She gave her own daughter up for adoption. Which was odd. She had been yeah. adopted. Yeah. And, in fact, the person, who, the couple who adopted the daughter were extremely wealthy. The wife died. The, the couple, the, the adopted right, mother died. The, right. And then the father died and left all the money to the adopted daughter, who was Edith's natural daughter. And then Edith fought in court to get her back. Right. And the, and the girl's about the three money years back. old then, right? Yes. Yeah. And she got the money. Yes. And the girl came to live with her. Yes. With the money. Yes. Yes. Yeah, it's, it's quite a fascinating story in itself. Um, it took me off the island too much, though. I want, <laughs> no, truly, truly. I, I felt I needed to tell you the story because right. it's so much fun. It's so bizarre. But what I'm trying to do here is, as I was doing in When the Killing's Done, is to talk about the island in a metaphorical way and also in the, the real way of of ecology and um, of our species wanting to carve a place for ourselves and be independent and, and, and live like this. It's very fascinating to me, especially in a world of 7 billion people, uh, to think of a kind of escape or your own private realm, you know? So I wanted to keep it rather hermetic and keep it on the island right. as much as possible. Well, let me ask you a question. Do you dream of of tropical islands where it's warm on the beach at all times and things like that? Or do you dream of cold, windy Alaskan tundras? Or Choice B. Choice yeah. B. I don't do well in the tropics, although oh. I'm fascinated by them. Okay. Uh, I'm fascinated by the creatures, uh, absolutely. Um, if it weren't for math, I might have been a biologist myself. Uh-huh. But um, I do like uh, extreme conditions. As you know, I spend a lot of time um, in the Sequoia National Forest, winter and summer, and right. I'm outdoors a lot. Right. I assume that was your answer. But, you know, <laughs> most, I think, when you know, there's this magazine, Islands. You've probably seen it at yes. the newsstand. Mm-hmm. And I, everyone that's on the cover, I don't think I've ever seen a, a, a 
snow-covered island on the cover. Let me put it that way. So, you know, I know they're selling them up in Maine. and You somewhere. know what's funny about that? You want what you don't have. <laughs> and I lived in L.A. for many years. Now I live in Santa Barbara. Right. And what I want is water mm. and extreme ah, weather, extremes yeah. of weather. And yeah. I get that up uh, in the Sierra Nevada, or at least I used to before global warming dried it up and spelled our imminent doom. And I'm hoping we'll the have book? the El Nino. Well, I've already written it. A friend of the one. earth. Yeah. A friend of the earth. And year 2000 right. projects to 2025, and right. it's about global warming. Right. And uh, they're promising us an El Nino year, and I just pray that they're right. We had a um, probably two thirds of uh, or or less of our normal precipitation, both on the coast and in the mountains mm-hmm. last year. Mm-hmm. And people should know who do not know Santa Barbara that they are under water rationing all the time now. Not really. Not well, yet. at least when you come to the – there's all these signs in the restaurants and then the motels mm. and mm. stuff telling you, be careful, there's not that much water here. I'll tell you a quick story about this. Okay. Uh, our reservoir is Lake Kachuma. It's uh, the Santinas River, which has been dammed up. And uh, when I first moved there, we're coming on 20 years now, um, I wanted to go out on Lake Kachuma in my kayak. Mm-hmm. But it's a reservoir, and I wasn't allowed to because my hands would dip in the water – and I might transmit diseases to the water supply. The water's right. not treated before it reaches? Ah, okay. Uh, I asked the ranger, I said, well, you have motorboats here with petroleum in the water. And she said, our filters have no problem taking out petroleum molecules, but viruses are too small. I didn't like that explanation, but I accepted it. Mm-hmm. Guess what, though? They need money. And they want more people to come to the lake. So now it's fine to take your kayak out there and touch the say, water. I was going to say, I thought I saw camping, boating, and a lot of, uh, of uh, There's no swimming boats there. on the no highway. No swimming there, of course. Ah, but right. now your fingers can touch the no water. No one accidentally falls overboard, though, do they? Uh, they keep a pretty tight rein on that. Oh, okay. So things happen, just as they do with uh, politics on the island. You are listening to Word by Word, Conversations with Writers on North Bay Public Media, KRCB-FM, Windsor, Santa Rosa, where tonight's guest is the celebrated novelist and former Sonoma County resident T.C. Boyle. We have been chatting about T.C.'s newest novel, San Miguel, which tells the stories of three courageous women who fought against loneliness as sheep ranchers on an isolated, windswept island in the Santa Barbara Channel. We've talked about Marantha, who came to the island hoping to ease her tuberculosis and her daughter, Edith, a teenage girl marooned on an island populated only by a few men and thousands of sheep. Now we're getting to know Elise, whose island existence was featured in Life magazine under the title America's Own Swiss Family Robinson. So stay tuned to North Bay Public Media, KRCB-FM, Windsor, Santa Rosa. The um, the last group of people who were there, the... Uh, the, the Lesters. The Lesters, the Swiss family Lesters, are the ones who kind of, um, I guess they're more idealistic in, in their relationship with each other. Um, they're a loving family. They both, um, I think, love and respect each other, wouldn't you say, for the most part? Yeah. Uh, uh, some of the readers have pointed this out, that, you know, Marantha and Edith, their time there was a struggle. They felt imprisoned. They did not want to live in nature. Mm-hmm. But for uh, for Elise Lester, it was an awakening for her. 
and she was in love and she bore children and she's living in a natural place. Of course, it had, <laughs> it certainly had its difficulties, but this was the happier time of the book. Right. In contrast to the first two women who The Dickensian time there. of the book, right. Yeah. yeah. Well, one of the things that I found interesting is that we had we just read that part about where you know the first woman comes to this hovel of a house, and when the Lesters come out, it's a brand new well, a newer house. It's been built with boards that were salvaged off a lumber ship. Yes, it's uh, it's got some life to it, some warmth to it. It's got a the bedroom has its own uh, stove, although it still doesn't have the exhaust mm. uh, hooked up. The house, in fact, was uh, shaped. Uh, in a V-shape with the V, like the prow of a boat, facing into the wind. And then a fence was built all the way around to keep the sand out and keep the wind out mm. for the courtyard. Mm -hmm. And it was a long, narrow house with um, with a porch going all along and doors entering from outside into the house. And uh, they made improvements over the years. They finally got electricity you mm -hmm. know, through a generator. Right. Um, they finally had a phonograph and so on. The first several years, though, from 1930, let's say, till 34 or 35, uh, they lived in, as the pioneers did. Kerosene lamps. And there's another interesting fact of this. Um, there was an amateur pilot living mm. in Montecito um, in an estate, a wealthy man living with his mother on an estate on the ocean. And he had a connection through a relative to Elise. And he flew out there one day right. to see what was there. And he became a close friend and a sort of lifeline for them to bring them uh, occasionally to, to the coast and to bring them supplies. Mm -hmm. And by the way, the fascination of the press with this family uh, was immeasurable. I mean, uh, the girls, they were now three and six or whatever, four and seven, had never seen a tree Mm -hmm. had never seen a house, a church, a, a street, a car. And so the, when they first came to Santa Barbara for a two-week period, photographers followed them around, and their first lick of ice cream was, was, was photographed. Uh, um, their reaction to everything they could see uh, of our civilized society was, was the first time for these girls. Mm -hmm. This is mid about 34? Yeah, yeah, probably. Yeah. Around then, let's see. Maybe a little later. A little 36? Okay. Yeah, because... Um, the girls are a little The youngest, uh, yeah. Betsy, was uh, would have been uh, quite uh, too young then, maybe a few years after that. Okay. So by then they were starting to get the, the niceties of life on the island as well. You mentioned that electricity came. Before that they had a wind-up Victrola, and, and, they, and the girls were astounded by the music that came out, as were the sheep apparently. <laughs> and then uh, they, had, uh, they ended up finally having even wireless communications with the mainland after – you know, the Navy came. And, and they made some money. They needed to make money and in many ways. They made some money by um, having uh, working for the Weather Service and right. having a Weather Service uh, uh, a station there on the island. And the two of them would take the barometric pressure and the temperature and so on and relay it back to the coast. Now, the difference here was is the, this family was working for the millionaire owners. Yes. So they were getting a salary, I gather? Yes. Uh Herbie had made a deal that he would work his his salary away so that he could buy in increasingly. But then the Depression hit, right? and all bets were off. In fact, he, they'd had an investor lined up that fell through the same beak for the same reason. Yes. Yeah. 
So Herbie looked on that $25, was it a month from the weather service? Yes. As cash money on the barrel that was kind of unusual. But yeah. on the other hand, you had to do it every darn day, just like milking cows twice a day. And uh, it got to be a chore. Well, everything gets to be a chore, but, uh, you know, we need to make money in this life, don't we? Right. And there are worse ways of doing it. Um, he was uh, utterly attached to this place. Uh, this is where he wanted to be. So when you immerse yourself into this place, because you obviously have by writing this, um, do you have a feeling you want to live some of this yourself? Or is it so alien to today that, you know, we from this this century uh, look on it and with the, what, my gosh, that's like living in, you know, the Bronze Age or something. It's always great to have nostalgia for a time we never knew. I like to point out what the hardships might have been. And yet still, we do have a nostalgia for this to, to get away from this crazy mechanized world and the capitalist society that has us like rodents running on this wheel to nowhere. And Herbie certainly felt this. He criticized, uh, you know, the, the rush and craziness of society back on the mainland. Um, I've written about this a lot, of a kind of a, a, the American utopian ideal where we want to make our own society. Uh, uh, Drop City, my uh, book about uh, the hippies and Back to the Earth movement, uh, set on a commune first uh, near the Russian River and then finally up in Alaska. Um, I've written about this a lot. I keep revolving it in my own mind as a kind of fantasy. Mm -hmm. um, That's why I asked the question. But, of course, I get the best of both worlds because I love culture. I love to do what we're doing now. Uh, so I live in Santa Barbara, and uh, I can have uh, as much culture as I like. I go around the world doing this sort of thing. But I also spend many, many months uh, up in the Sequoia National Forest and sometimes alone. And I, I can move between the two. Um, a week or two in the squares, and I get bored. Even though I'm working every day, I still get bored, and I want to go and see people. And now you were you're writing when you're up there. Yeah, okay. sure, sure. I well, I didn't know if you were had a you know an axe in your hand or something like that. <laughs> uh, uh, many years ago, I bought a plot up there, thinking I would build a cabin. Uh, but you know, it's not only is it environmentally insensitive to have two houses, but how can I be typing and working if I had to maintain another house and keep it from falling down? So it will forever be the uh, the honorary Boyle Squirrel Preserve. Right. And I rent a house from an old friend. Good. That's that's wise of you. Mm -hmm. And then the old friend has all the problems with the leaking roof and the mice exactly. and the squirrels. But I give him money. <laughs> <laughs> that's how it works. So um, your next projects, where are we going next? I'll be seeing you next year around this time. <laughs> uh, I have, But hopefully at a better time of day so you don't get stuck in the traffic. Yeah, this was a difficult day for me, coming right. down from Seattle and doing an early show and the plane delays. But let's not get into that. All right. Uh, next year I have T.C. Boyle Stories 2, the second volume of my collected stories. Oh, yeah. You were working the, on that last that's time right. together. That's right. The first came out in 98, and it was everything from the beginning of my career. And now from 98 on... And it includes an entirely new volume of 14 new stories, which I've just finished doing before I came off on this tour. Uh -huh. And I've also had an opportunity to do the research for the next novel, which will also take us to a rural place. Um, but it will be your basic hairy-chested man's novel about American violence, and it will be set in Northern California. You're tired of all these women? 
Well, I've done my the staff side. Now I'm going to go back to my manly side, you know? Now, when we were talking, I'm trying to remember because I, I should have played the show back to myself so I could refresh my memory. You were trying to figure out your um, – was it going to be a chronological novel based on the chronology of the stories, not the chronology of when you wrote them oh. or what? So what have you The decided? short stories. Yes. Uh, I'm the, sorry, novel. The previous sorry. volume, I invented three categories, love, death, and everything in between, right. and had a good time taking all the stories and fitting them into these arbitrary and um, kinds of whimsical categories. In this second volume, um, I write a foreword. My editor had asked me to write a foreword, and it's it's foreword about your own work. Yeah, a, a foreword about how I feel about short stories, why I wrote them, how my career has gone, who influenced me, that sort of thing. Uh, it's a kind of valedictory uh, message to everybody, although I'm feeling pretty good. I might write some more stories, but this will conclude the first two volumes. And it's primarily chronological um, up until the latest stories, which were all written within the last two or three years anyway. It ends, in fact, with the story that was in New Yorker uh, a couple of weeks ago called Burnham Wood. I really um, uh, am happy about the way that story ends. It ends very powerfully and i thought that would be a fitting one to end this entire collection mm -hmm. now that brings me to an interesting question of writing historical fiction sort of historic uh, what do we call it creative fiction creative non-fiction i just write fiction okay i just write fiction and sometimes, sometimes it has a historical setting historical sometimes uh, they're actual characters like the lesters or yeah. or kinsey or uh, kellogg or frank lloyd wright you end the book by kind of bringing us up to date of what happens after the Lesters leave on the island. And mm -hmm. we have, you know, gotten that in in uh, When the Killing's Done a little bit more because that's, you know, semi-modern day. Right. Um, about what happens in World War II and what happens when the Navy comes in and what happens when the, the Interior Department gets involved and what happens when it becomes a park and what happens, et cetera, et cetera. And this is kind of a microcosm of the California dream, you know, and we – we look at the parts of the state that we've set aside, you know, and we read this morning that all of a sudden that Governor Brown has found some money to keep all the state parks open. Surprise, surprise, surprise. I, I like this reading uh, very much so, uh, Gil. I, I like what you're saying here with regard to how it works on these islands, how we want to possess the land and use it for our own purposes, mm -hmm. um, uh, as we've done from time immemorial. But my question in, in all of my books, but particularly in these last two about the Channel Islands, is um, what gives us the right to do that? Uh, are there ethics involved? Um, uh, do we share, et cetera? Mm -hmm. And these are irresolvable, irresolvable questions, of course, and I have a lot of uh, fun. <laughs> fun is important, and, and I get to exercise my brain in imagining these things. Right. Well, one of the things that, that made me think about is that, you know, the, the seal hunter who takes the guano off, Robert Ord. He hasn't paid for that privilege, and this is privately owned, is it not? So why can, I mean, why is it okay? You know, they don't want him to take the sheep because that's cash money, but they don't think anything about coming and saying. And the Chinese coming yeah. to take the abalone and right. dry it and send right. it back to China. They right. were brought in groups on all these islands and left for months to have an encampment, catch the abalone, dry them, and then the ship would come and take it back to China. The Japanese were also fishing there. Mm -hmm. Um there's an interesting story about the Japanese that uh, we learn because 
uh, Mr. Lester tells his wife about it because the, the, there are three Japanese who appear and she comes in and she serves them tea. And he comes in and he gives this, you know, a variety of expressions on his face as she describes it and finally ends up with a, a, a sort of a ineffectual smile, you know, that polite smile that we put on. And she knows that means something. Yeah, well, of, of course, um, I'm taking the actual events and then I'm fictionalizing them. Right. So that... Uh, in the Elise Lester memoir, uh, The King of San Miguel, which mm -hmm. is about her life there with, with Herbie, um, she tells that story that before she had gotten there, uh, Herbie had been there for a few months before she got there, then he came to get her. He was overseeing the place, and he was putting out strychnine baits uh, for the eagles right. and ravens. Right, and which we knew intimately from your previous From books. when the killing's yes. done. And he didn't realize he rolled himself a cigarette and smoked it, and the strychnine had been on his hand. And he went into a swoon, and he was very ill. And it just happened that a Japanese boat had come into the harbor. A guy came up, a Japanese, and Herbie asked for help. And the guy assisted him and put him into bed, but then left him there and stole one of his guns. And that's the received history, as, as Elise Lester tells it. Mm-hmm. I uh, use that incident, but then I create the incident of the Japanese seamen coming and uh, at least welcoming them. And this all plays to the actual history at the end when, of course, the only place in the U.S. that has been um, uh, uh, shelled right. uh, in recent times was Santa Barbara, the oil fields mm -hmm. off of Elwood. Mm -hmm. And in my telling, you that wonder was, if well, that wasn't was that the very sea captain. submarine that, that yes. did that? Yes, yes and, and uh, best they can reconstruct it. The captain of that submarine knew the waters very well. He had been piloting an oil tanker, taking oil back to Japan. And apparently, uh, he'd had a run-in with some of the American workers, mm. uh, a racist run-in, and he was getting a little revenge. And uh, shelled, uh, shelled Elwood. Uh, not much damage was done, but the coast was in a panic. I mm -hmm. mean, uh, we, uh, there was a blackout all the way down to L.A. Uh, people thought the Japanese were invading at this point. It was a shortly after uh, Pearl Harbor. Right. It was just in the start of, I think it was in January of the following year, as I recall the date. So, uh, because my father talked, told me about that story. He says, well, you know, they, they shelled, the, you know, the... The oil field's down there. They were going to blow it all up. Yeah. You know, Gil, I'm starting to regret that I didn't take another couple of years and make this a thousand pages because <laughs> that's another story along with uh, uh, Edith's story that, that really could be expanded. But right. again, I did want to keep it. Yeah, no, I understand. Day-to-day -day life Besides, you've got medic way on the island. You, you can write. It's like that, you know, Wonder Boys, this novel in the drawer that keeps the pages get higher and higher. I can't remember how many pages he's up to, 1,200 or something like mm. that. That's mm. too many. I don't know. Everybody is different and has their own projects. I uh, This is what I felt like doing after reading these memoirs. And in fact, by the way, um, I thought I would have to tell the male point of view as well, as you get in when the killing's done. You yes. see the male and female yes. point of view, the two antagonists. And I actually began one of the chapters from Captain Waters' point of view. And I particularly felt I needed it because of what happens in the end, which we won't give away. Right. Um, but I realized, no, it's it's... I was influenced by the female voices of these narratives and inhabiting those characters. And so it, I decided early on that it would just go through them. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, 
I'm happy. I you, didn't want to did. re repeat myself from the same structure as when the killing's done. Yeah, in my novel, I've also written a female from a female point of view, first person, and people keep asking, well, how can you know this sixty-plus person write about a eleven-year-old girl? And I said, well, <laughs> you just hear it. Is yeah, that what happens? Of course. Yeah. And we are human beings of all one species. Yeah. No matter what our ethnicity is or our sexual orientation or our gender. And uh, I think a novelist, from my point of view anyway, should try to be anybody, do mm -hmm. anything. Mm -hmm. my, probably my best-known book is The Tortilla Curtain, in which I'm writing from the point of view of Mexican immigrants, including a female. Mm -hmm. Um I think you need to stretch yourself and try to see what it is. And you're right. You do create a character, and you do begin to hear a voice, and you just try to be true to it. Right. And it, it kind of becomes part of the process, doesn't it? Sure. Now, the other thing is we had a real, I guess, you were hesitant to call him a villain. But we had a man with a distinctive point of view in When the Killing is Done, a man who people could easily... Dislike. Dave LaJoy. That's right. The one who decided he was going to uh, take it on himself to be the champion of the animals yes. and the naturalness of, of life to the detriment of anyone who got in his way. An eco-warrior. Right. And um, he, I created him as an extremely obnoxious character, one of these men who is angry at everything and angry right. all the time. And yet... He had one principle, which is incontrovertible. Thou shalt not kill. And so while Alma Boyd Takasue, the biologist in When the Killing's Done, uh, feels the same way. Uh, they're both vegetarians. They could be allies. She, though, sees a kind of realpolitik here that um, certain creatures like the pigs that had to be killed. The feral pigs. The right. feral pigs and the rats on Anacapa had to be sacrificed in order to save the indigenous species, which are found nowhere else in the world. Dave didn't believe that. Right. And by the way, the, 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 the ethical question there, which is irresolvable, uh, has caused the book to become very popular with book clubs. Of course, there's always blood on the wall after the argument is done. And, um, I, was, I took the book to, uh, to Germany, and it came out in hardcover there this past spring. Wenn der Schlachten vorbeist. Is that the, that's, that's, that's when the time. killing's done. Or okay. actually, they chose when the slaughtering is done. Yes. Um, well, that's a different word. And it, it is, has, it but uh, my interpreter explained to me and my translator why they chose this and so on. Anyway, uh, one of the many journalists I talked to was a young woman from Halle. And she was so concerned with this. She didn't really do an interview. She just wanted to make this point. And we talked for a long while. And the point was, in Hala, apparently, they have two invasive species, the nutria mm -hmm. that got there somehow Which is from kind America. of like a guinea pig or something, isn't it? it? Larger, uh, yeah. more like a muskrat, I think, oh, from okay. South America. We oh. brought it to Louisiana to get fur, and it's taken over, and now it's in Hala. I don't know how or why. And parrots, flocks of parrots. Really? And she was adamant that they should not be removed. They should not be killed. It's not their fault that they're there. And that's the essential conundrum of when the killing's done. And to, well, that to we, some extent, we talk about it, yeah. too, in San Miguel. Yeah, yeah. I mean, people brought the sheep there right. uh, just as they, just uh, as they depleted the, the abalone trees. and they yeah. brought those two palm trees uh, in order to make profit from it or, or make it comfortable for them. 
um, and it doesn't take into account all the rest of the environment. Right. Well, okay, I'm going to go along this point. So we, we have this obvious uh, character in the other book who people disliked strenuously if they choose to. And you have two husbands in this book who were in many ways contrasting but have the similar problem. They have to maintain an existence in a place which is extremely challenging. They have to raise their children there and their wives there. Um, I didn't really like the first husband very much. Hmm. Captain Waters was, yeah. uh, in my portrayal anyway, of course, these are historical characters. My sources are very small. I mean, no one really knows much about them. Um, there are letters, there are newspaper articles, and then there are these memoirs. Mm -hmm. That's about it. Mm -hmm. um, I read him as a character who was uh, uh, a belligerent sort uh, who would get what he wanted and really didn't have much concern for his wife or daughter beyond the normal concern. Uh, he was going to have his project and he was going to succeed no matter what. Uh, again, it's very similar to some of the historical figures I've written about, Frank Lloyd Wright, right. David Kellogg, and so on. These are men who <coughs> have they're, a vision. They're captains. They're captains. They that's, have a vision. They are right. going to do what they're going to do, and everybody else must toe the line and come along. And so I like to think of the other side of that, of the people who are their followers, or in this case, uh, wife and daughter. What is the price they pay for being under this captaincy or under this regime? Mm-hmm. Well, the next man, the next husband, um, is fascinating in many ways. For one thing, he has this fascination with firearms. He and the you know the millionaire who's funding this and who brings him out secret. You know, look at this. Look what I found you, uh, an old flintlock or something like that, or or this new uh, whaling harpoon gun. You mm -hmm. know. Yeah, these are all true. This is true to the facts of uh, Elisa's uh, memoir. Herbie uh, collected. Guns mm -hmm. and had a, a, a really fine collection of guns, which is hard to do out in a foggy. Well, he brought them with him, and then kept when, them when uh, Bob Brooks, the millionaire who right. who owned the place or who had the lease on the place from the government, would bring him uh, guns. He would trade guns and so on. Right. So the fact that the Japanese man took a, one of his guns, I assume, was a pistol. I don't know. I believe it was a rifle. Oh, that, okay. That, he took. Um, that was uh, very dear to him. Yes, yes. yes. That and he'd was, hold that grudge for a long time. That was his time. foremost collection. Right. Absolutely. Right. And it's a violation. I mean, uh, he was desperately ill at the time from mm -hmm. the strychnine poisoning. Mm -hmm. And again, I'm reading into these characters and trying to portray how they might have felt. We haven't pointed out that Herbie had mental problems as well. Right. But we won't. I don't think we want to go too we far. Don't we don't want to give the whole, no, we, the whole, the they've whole story They've got to find away. some things when they pick up the book mm -hmm. it, themselves. It is T.C. Boyle's San Miguel, which is the northernmost large island, I guess we'll say, of the um, Santa Barbara Channel Islands. So I always do this to you, and I'm going to do it once again. What piece of advice now do you have with another year under your belt and another novel and a new set of uh, short story collection coming out for those writers out there who would love to hear your pearls of wisdom. Mm. Stick with it. <laughs> Stick with it. No, truly. Uh, you know, I went to the Iowa Writers Workshop, and many of my fellow students there are some of our best-known writers today. Right. Others have 
disappeared. They may have gone into other professions. You know, I've been teaching at USC all these years. I've seen some of my students are quite well known as writers, as, as I am, mm -hmm. and doing what I'm doing. Others are in film or, you know, uh, not in the arts at all. You know, life takes you in different places. Uh, but the ones who are going to make it not only have a great talent, many have the great talent, but they have a kind of compulsion to do it. Um, I don't know if we mentioned it on the last show, but on tcboyle.com you can find this essay, This Monkey, My Back, mm -hmm. in which I talk about my origins as a writer and what it was like and compare the creation of art to a kind of drug high so that you feel so exhilarated while you're creating it and especially when it comes together and you've concluded it. But like with a drug, you then want to do it again and again and again and you must have that kind of addiction in order to produce art. Well, I want to tell you that, uh, you know, this is it's wonderful to have you back again and to talk at, for, I can now honestly say this, one novelist to another, because this is my first novel here, The Marvelous Journals of Miss Virginia Pettengill, which just came out. And, uh, it, you know, I've done a lot of nonfiction, and this is a different kettle of fish. It does take you on. The characters become, drive themselves. It's a whole different uh, process. And well, Gil, you're not the first. How about Tom Wolfe? That's right. <laughs> Who has a new book coming out, I believe. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, thank you once again for coming and spending some time with us uh, here on Word by Word. You're very welcome. T.C. Boyle, San Miguel. This is Gil Manser, thanking you for listening to Word by Word Conversations with writers on North Bay Public Media, KRCB-FM Windsor, Santa Rosa, where tonight's guest is the celebrated novelist and former Sonoma County resident T.C. Boyle. We were talking about T.C.'s newest novel, San Miguel, which tells the stories of three courageous women who fought against loneliness and despair as sheep ranchers on an isolated, windswept island in the Santa Barbara Channel. The studio engineer for tonight's show is Mark Fuller, with some after-hours assistance from Mark Prell. KRCB's word-by-word -word broadcasts are archived by Sean Knight, and tonight's show, as well as the April 2011 word-by-word -word conversation with T.C. Boyle, are available as podcasts at krcb.org. We want to welcome you to our next word-by-word -word show at 7 o'clock Wednesday, December 5th. It's a special holiday show featuring suggestions for several exciting gift books, from Copperfield's book buyers Cheryl Cotelure and Michelle Bella. Until then, we at North Bay Public Media, KRCB-FM, wish you a safe and very happy Thanksgiving. <laughs>